Oh, Philip, um, I see you brought a number two pencil to our meeting today. Um, have you ever thought about the technological advancements that a number two pencil presents? And uh, I see you also have your smartphone. What do you think about the contrast between a number two pencil from a technological improvement in society in contrast to your smartphone? Well, unfortunately, I probably use my smartphone more than my number two pencil, but I've never, I don't know if I've thought about that a lot, but you know, if you think about the compounding of technological advancement, Mm -hmm. the pencil would be just about as significant if you think about it at that time in terms of the leap from, I suppose it would be quill pens at that time, you know, now you can erase it and have all these other features that are pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, It's an interesting thought. Well, and and we know how smartphones are built in factories that uh, incorporate a lot of machinery and a lot of this, that, and the other. Pencils are also built that way. Uh, It's really something from a technological standpoint. When you go from ink well and quill pen to a portable, erasable, lightweight, long-lasting tool that is a way to communicate that isn't susceptible to being runny like ink is with it gets wet. Uh, it's really quite an incredible technological breakthrough, and it's had a great impact on the advancement of man from a technological standpoint, communication standpoint. Welcome to the Legacy Project Podcast, the conversation that utilizes early American history as a way to explore and sustain our legacy of liberty. This series is intended to be enjoyed sequentially. Follow along with us as we discuss the foundational ideas of America that transformed the course of history and left each of us a legacy of liberty. Welcome back to The Legacy Project. This is Philip, and I'm here with Stan. And today we're going to be talking about the American economic system, And sort of contrasting that with some of the other economic systems in the world. In the last episode, we talked about some of the cultural characteristics. We talked about the first and second Thanksgivings and how that very early experiment amongst the pilgrims began to form a basis culturally for how our economic system uh, came about. Maybe you can give us a brief recap and we can just dive right into talking about our economic system today. Yeah. Well, an economic system is you know, combined with our governmental system is basically how the society primarily operates. The other component is culture, and we'll talk about that in our final lessons. But um, it's uh, our, our economic system is unique. It's uh, built on the way we operated as opposed to the way the crown economic system operated. We had to operate differently, as we talked about just because of the isolation and the need to get things done and couldn't wait for somebody to you know, bring over a bag of money. You just had to get stuff done. So our system um, has a whole lot different ways of approaching economic transactions, as well as how our system raises people up much more than it would in any other system, which typically are rulers and subjects being ruled by them in the economic realm on behalf of the rulers. Their their motivation is, how do I get more, and how do I use these people to do so, where our system is completely different than that. So we talked about the idea that our our economic system is oftentimes called a free market or free Mm -hmm. enterprise economic system. Right. 
where do we see that in the Declaration, or do we see that in the Declaration of Independence at all in terms of laying out the principles of not only the form of government or the ideas behind a form of government, but also an economic system? Well, it's the pursuit of happiness. Uh, you know, we talked about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness as endowed rights. And we remember pursuit of happiness was originally pursuit of property. So it was an economic concept. It's, it's uh, personal prosperity. It's your own creativity. They changed the word to happiness to avoid any conflict between the Northerners who thought property might imply that we were supporting slavery as a policy, um, even though that was the language of the uh, Enlightenment era. I think it was a, the right thing to do was to change that to something that now could be translated into the idea of personal happiness from an economic standpoint. And that's what, uh, that's what is the foundational principle that then creates this economic system in concert with the creation of a constitution, a bill of rights, and uh, the American form of government. So we have an audio clip mm-hmm. that we'll play, and this will give sort of a background in terms of our economic system yes. and compare that with some of the other economic systems out there. Right. And this, this clip also has some incredibly important definitions. And I would uh, encourage the listeners to listen closely because the definitions are critical to our understanding of how our economic system works. The American economy. Ordering economic liberty. In 1776, the same year the founders signed the Declaration of Independence, a Scottish philosopher named Adam Smith published a book called The Wealth of Nations. This book helped introduce the founders to a new economic philosophy called free enterprise. It presented the notion that individuals pursuing their personal interests would be guided by what he called the invisible hand. And this economic force would unleash personal initiative and creativity, allowing individuals to break free of the economic systems of their time. The overall economic condition around the world during the mid-1700s had most families living subsistence lives while elites and rulers held nearly all wealth and power. Society was segregated into classes of rulers and subjects, and this was the case both politically and economically. The established economic system in the colonies was no longer in place, creating great frustration and significant hardship throughout the land. Rebuilding a new civilization after we won the war would be a monumental task, but this new approach to economics described by Adam Smith seemed perfectly aligned with the philosophical principles expressed in the Declaration of Independence. Free enterprise was instituted, because it complemented the principle of pursuing happiness. Without wealth and power controlled by the usual government forces, Americans were suddenly freer to trade, exchange, and enter into transactions with one another, offering the potential of greater freedom, prosperity, and class mobility. This liberty-oriented course transformed the society with new systems and institutions, all supporting the advancement of individual human flourishing. Forms of Economies In our last lesson, we studied the American form of government. One of the primary conclusions we established in that lesson was quite stark. We learned that there are really only two basic forms of government, oligarchy and republic. Just as governments boil down to two basic forms, economic systems can also be narrowed down to two forms, state-controlled or free enterprise. These economic systems can be structured in various ways but it is critical to understand how the underlying principles of each are quite different and distinct. 
Before we examine these systems, we need to understand the principles of each. This requires definition of some key terms that nearly everyone is familiar with, but their meanings are often misunderstood. Let's start with capitalism, a word that most Americans would use to define the economic system of the United States. To illustrate this economic term, visualize a castaway stranded on a deserted island. He cannot find any food on the island, so he tries to catch a fish with his hands. Too bad, the fish are just too fast. He goes back to the beach and finds a bush where he breaks off a branch. He gnaws a point on one end and then goes back into the shallows where he spears a fish for supper. The spear is capital, which is defined as the means of production. He uses his ingenuity, time, and effort to make something he cannot eat, but he can use to catch fish so he won't starve. This simple means of production is the core of capitalism. It can also be machinery, a factory, financing, creativity, or in some cases, people. So if we think about it, capitalism is clearly not exclusive to the American economic system. Every economic system in every nation produces things using tools, machinery, money, and labor. It doesn't matter how controlled or how free economies are. They are all capitalist. It does matter, however, who owns and controls capital. This is a primary difference between state-controlled and free enterprise economic systems. Another term that needs definition is private property rights. First, it is important to note that property is an object, but property rights are an action by the owner. Kings, emperors, or governments can own property and exercise their rights as owners. For example, the American government owns Yellowstone National Park, and they control their property. But, in a free enterprise economic system, individuals own private property. And according to the doctrine of liberty, their ability to exercise their private property rights is to be secured by the government, not interfered with by the government or others. There are four characteristics that define property rights. Ownership, control, use, and ability to dispose. An automobile is a good example to show these characteristics of private property rights. The title to a car is legal proof of ownership. Control of the car, or when and how the car will be used, is determined by the owner. Who uses the car or where it goes is also privately determined. Finally, the owner decides when and at what price to sell the car. These characteristics define property rights, and just like capital, the differences between economic systems are determined by who owns and controls property. Economic Systems State-Controlled In a state-controlled economic system, all property and all capital are owned by the state, or, in 1776, King George III of England. All economic plans, transactions, values, and other decisions come from the rulers of the state, who control all production, all wealth, and all property, distributing it however they see fit to the citizens. With the state controlling all aspects of the economy, everyone's talent, skills, and worth are determined by the state. Social and economic mobility will also be decided by the state, and the position within each society will be judged by what each person can do to enhance the overall society as determined by the state. Under this system, people are viewed as capital, producing things on behalf of the state. For centuries, this state-controlled economic system has been the predominant system, where kings, emperors, and other tyrants rule subjects using political power and economic control over capital and property. In the 20th century, this system was called communism, 
but it operates just like the state-controlled economic systems that have been around for centuries. Free enterprise. The alternative to this is a free enterprise or free market economy where property, capital, and wealth are privately owned and controlled by individual owners. In this economic system, the law addresses unscrupulous behavior, fraud and injury by those that violate their property rights or the property rights of others. All violators of laws are judged under a fixed body of rules that apply to everyone, regardless of their position in society. Until the United States of America came into being, free market economies did not exist on any large scale. This is because there had never before been a political system that empowered individuals to pursue happiness with economic liberty. Since every large-scale economy is always connected to government, and the purpose of government in America was to secure the rights of individuals, it seemed natural that a free enterprise economy would thrive within this new liberty-oriented society. However, the founders recognized that the tendency of government is to exercise control over the governed by both political and economic means. To address this, they created the Constitution to restrain political power and set up a free enterprise system that placed economic power into the hands of the people, allowing market forces to guide the economy. They recognized the higher societal value of liberty and put these institutions in place to support and protect it. Blended Economic Systems By the latter part of the 19th century, the American economy was strengthening and was showing how free market economics could improve the comfort and prosperity of humanity. But these changes threatened the European powers that had always controlled economic conditions from the top down. Elite Europeans believed new, blended systems were needed to enhance state-controlled and restrain free market economic systems. While America continued to embrace free enterprise economics, European philosophers and power brokers offered several alternatives that intended to blend these opposites into better, more workable systems. By the early 20th century, fascism, socialism, and Nazism were introduced, not as new forms of government, but as superior economic systems. These systems were presented as more efficient and more supportive of the general population than economies directed by an overbearing king or an unmanaged free enterprise system. Many believed that blending state control with free enterprise would further advance civilization and the freedom of mankind. Fascism as an example, under the new economic system called fascism, the Italian dictator Mussolini allowed property to be privately owned. But he qualified this by telling the owners what to produce, how much to produce, when to produce, where to buy raw materials, who to hire, how much their wages would be, and what price to charge. The rest, he said, was up to the owner. Since the proprietor believed he owned his property, he did a better job of maintaining his shop and offered better quality and service to his customers. But the burden of relentless rules, regulations, and taxes inhibited innovation and reduced prosperity. Micromanagement of all economic activity ultimately caused the underground market to increase, while business stopped growing, further weakening the overall economy. Government revenues fell, resulting in higher taxes and more regulation. Before long, the economy of Italy collapsed, leaving the people worse off than before. Socialism was another way of blending economic systems. This approach has the state taking total ownership and control of essential industries like utilities, transportation, communications, and other elements of the economy. 
Smaller, localized businesses would operate under the fascist system described previously. In Germany, Nazism was basically the same as socialism, but instead of the government literally owning the industries, government-supported monopolies owned by like-minded cronies took control of the essential industries. Socialism, Nazism, and fascism tried to pretend that the government did not own and control the primary elements of their economies, but the results overshadowed the pretense. The government controlled the means of production with regulations and heavy-handed oversight, while property was either controlled by the government or some small group that was in partnership with the government. A very small part of the economy was actually free, and it was usually underground, always fearful of government retribution. During the initial phases of these new systems, things appeared to be working as planned, but as state control increased, economic attitudes changed and productivity decreased. A few politically connected citizens prospered while the vast majority of people had a significantly reduced standard of living, with little hope of improving their economic status. These so-called blended economic systems eventually turned into state-controlled, with the state fundamentally functioning as an oligarchy, ruled by a small group of self-selected elites. The degree of control was theoretically different, but the inevitable results were effectively the same a society of rulers and subjects, just as the founders had predicted. Attributes of free enterprise In contrast to the inevitable slide toward more control in blended economic systems, a free market economy allows competition, individual ambition, and innovation to determine economic successes or failures. Free individuals, exercising their free choices, guide business decisions about what to produce, how much to produce, when to produce, where to buy raw materials, who to hire, how much their wages will be, and what price to charge. Decisions are not forced, they are freely made, so competition thrives, encouraging better products, better service, and increased efficiency. Personal talent and ambition are rewarded. Success is determined by what is accomplished, not by who someone knows. The market rewards entrepreneurialism, and this promotes innovation and perpetually increases the society's standard of living. Pursuing happiness in a free market economy that is justly and prudently regulated results in a prosperous, peaceful, and forward-looking society working together for the betterment of all. So, Philip, a lot of information in the soundtrack and uh, probably more than you could keep up with, but uh, let's kind of recap some of those those thoughts there. So, the Wealth of Nations was published by Adam Smith, a Scotsman. And so, um, w- do you remember when, what year that book was published? Well, it's pretty easy to remember because it was 1776. Right. It was April in 1776. That book really laid out the structure and the ideas behind a free market economic system, which is, again, unique in the world because every other system is under a ruler subject economic as well as governmental system. But that book had not reached the shores of the United States by July of 1776. And so our founders were putting language to pursue happiness without knowing how you were going to implement that. But at the same time, Adam Smith is creating the document or the book that gives the guide rules as to how you could implement that. It's pretty amazing the timing of that, the way that came together. Yeah. But by the time you got to a constitution, you know, 11 years after the Declaration and all the experiments with economies, this book was very well read in the United States. 
and a lot of people understood it. And many of the founders said, boy, this perfectly aligns with our liberty-oriented government. In fact, it's kind of right on the money as far as what uh, we were thinking about when we wrote The Pursuit of Happiness. So can you recap for us what capital is? Well, most people think the United States economic system is called capitalism. What it really, let's pull capitalism into what it actually means. We've got to have a definition in order to then find out. When people talk to me about this capitalist economy, I say, well, tell me what capitalism is. Most of them can't, but, you know, you want to ask. But capital is the means of production. Literally, that's what the definition is. The soundtrack described how capital is the means of production. The, the spear uh, goes and gets the fish where the guy couldn't catch it with his hands. So the tool is the means of production. And he used his ingenuity, he used his time, and he used his energy to gnaw the point and then go spear the fish. And those are how you create capital is out of those factors. So really there's no economic system that doesn't use capital. No, there is not. And, uh, you know, we always kind of negatively label economies as capitalist economies. Well, every economy has tools, every has labor, every economy has financing, every economy has means of production. So, yeah, it's it's uh, mislabeled as a form of economic system. Capitalism is a uh, a means of producing things that's basically just a definition as opposed to a system. So so then within that, you hear this term sometimes, human capital or this idea, mm-hmm. are people capital? Do you think they are? are you th- do you think people are the means of production? No, I, I don't believe so. And I don't believe that it aligns with, with even the principles of what we've discussed of all men being created equal or so on. Yeah. That somebody's not just a tool for production, but under certain, um, certain forms, I guess, of economic systems, certainly you can see how people have been seen as, I mean, you know, you go to a factory, a war factory mm. underneath a communist government. Well, I think pretty much that person was seen as just a tool to get something done. Sure. Well, and it depends on the form of government and the form of economy. Um, people that work with others in the United States in a free market economy have the right to not work there. They can quit and they can go do something else. If you're in another system, you don't have that right. You basically are doing what you're told to do. And it's most typically what your grandfather did, what your father did, you're doing, your children are doing, and your grandchildren are doing. So it's a very lineal economic existence. There's no social mobility. There's no economic mobility in most of these uh, ruler-subject societies. And so the free market system, I would say people are not capital because they're really contributors, and they have the right to not be capital or contributors whenever they feel like it. So that's the kind of the distinction as to the question about are people actually capital? In some cases, yes. But in America, not really. Yes, as it ought to be. Yes. So one of the other key terms that the audio talked about a bit, which I I think would be helpful to recap a bit, is this idea of private property rights. Mm -hmm. Now, where does this idea come from, this idea of owning private property? 
Well, the Pilgrims uh, was kind of the first experience that we talked about in our last episode. Um, but you got to realize there, there wasn't property ownership. The king owned everything. And then the, the crown basically administered his holdings. And if you were a good earl, then you would get access to this particular estate. But if you were a bad earl, you would be eliminated from that estate and somebody else would get it. That's what the crown could do. If you're a subject, a servant, a slave, or a serf, then, I mean, owning anything was really out of the question. The clothes on your back weren't even yours. So this whole notion of private property. And then Bradford coming up with this idea in order to then overcome the devastation of the pilgrims, and it just instantly turned things around. Within the one year of harvest, it just instantly turned things around. That inspired the Americans to recognize, wow, this is a completely different way of thinking about how an economic system would work. And that then gets implemented as we get into the Constitution. And of course, the Declaration, we talked earlier about how one of the rights that, that come from the Creator mm-hmm. and the Declaration is the pursuit of happiness or the pursuit of property. Yes. So it has this idea of of ownership of, of private property. Yes. But of course the government's role in that is not to provide that right. Correct. Uh, that is a, a right that's given by God and is, uh, cannot be taken away. Right. Um, but the government's role is to secure that right. So securing private property is obviously a significant role within the government. Well, and again, think of the magnitude of what was created here. I mean, there is no private property. There's no such thing. There's, there's maybe a desire for it, and there might be isolated instances where you felt like you owned something. But it's such a rare occasion, and now we're setting up an entire economic system with private property as a, 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 a stone, a foundation stone for that entire system. So, so, so in the audio, it talked about four different characteristics that define property rights. Can you just quickly maybe go over those for us again? Uh, it was pretty quick in the video. I think it'd be helpful to, to walk through a little bit more. Sure. Well, ownership's pretty clear, uh, but you need a title or you need a deed. You need a bill of sales. Something that would confirm your ownership is a characteristic of private property ownership. Uh, use is another thing. That's who would use it and when they could use it. Uh, you would have control over it, so how it's used and where it goes. And we're using a car just as a mental picture here. Uh, and then you would have the final number or the final uh, characteristic is the ability to dispose. When you want to, at what price you want to sell it, it's not something that you've leased and now it has to be taken back. It's something that you own and you can leverage that into a, uh, an asset that has a, a building of wealth. Or you can leverage that into, I got to get rid of my boat and I will sell it for a loss uh, because I don't ever yeah. <laughs> use it type of a thing. So, but it's up to you now to how you deal with your, your financial assets and your private property. And of course, the government role in securing your right of private property is always this, I don't know if balancing is the right term, mm-hmm. but if you want to dispose of your car, as an example, yes. you can't leave it on somebody else's property because now you're violating yes. their property right. And so exactly. that's where you have 
sort of some of the outworking of those things yes. in legislatures through the, the process yes. that is outlined in the Constitution and the state processes. Mm-hmm. So you have, of course, that balancing of property rights, if you if you say it yeah. that way. So really fascinating, and, and I, we've sort of hinted at this in a couple of the episodes now. Communism, of course, is an economic system. I, I would always have thought of it as a form of government, mm. not as an economic system. And, of course, we talked about in the last episode that the grave importance of economic systems and how that can bring about life or death yes. for entire societies or at least subsections of societies. So maybe we can go through some of the some of the blended economic systems that the audio talked about a bit mm-hmm. and unpack those a little bit more sure. to begin to understand these terms of communism and fascism and socialism, Nazism. How do these work and, and how do they contrast with the free market system that we have here in America? Well, Communism is only the same economic system that King George, uh, the pharaohs, the Caesars. I mean, it's a completely dominated by the state. It's a state-controlled system. It's just labeled as communism to sound better, uh, but it's really the exact same outcome. And most of the blended systems find themselves struggling with labels that don't necessarily result in what their outcomes are intended to be. So... But if you think of communism as strictly a a dominated state-organized economy, that's what communism is. And that's what every economic system prior to free market system ideas have always been. Fascism, Mussolini in Italy, uh, in advance of World War II, he says to his people, we need a new economic system. And some of these geniuses at the university and some of these philosophers from Germany and some of these others around the, the Western Europe have come up with some really great ideas. And one of them is what we call fascism. Um, and fascism is where Mussolini tells the business owners, you can own your property, uh, but I'm going to regulate your capital. And so the business owner goes, and they've never owned property. You got to understand, this is like, wow! I, suddenly, I'm now the owner of this little coffee shop. Well, that, they weren't ever the owner. They were a ward of the state, or they were the cousin of the king, or or whatever. And now you have more people that feel like, well, I'm owning property, but by regulating the capital, controlling the capital, even though the fellow thinks he's owning the property what he does, when he does it, who he can hire, what the prices are going to be, all of this list of regulations, ultimately the guy can't do anything because the micromanagement of his business through capital regulation is in essence put him into a false uh, uh, expectation that he owns something. And so it just deteriorates on itself. People come to that religion or that realization and they just... The business just dries up. So when you say regulation of a capital, the capital, of course, we know that's the tool for production or the means yeah. of production. Mm-hmm. What, what does that look like? Or um, maybe you can give us an example of what, what you mean by regulation of a capital. Well, if you're an employee, is considered to be capital. So I'm going to tell you who you can hire, how much you're going to pay them, what you can do. You can't fire them. You know, So that's a regulation of the capital. I'm going to tell you what your prices are going to be. I'm going to tell you what your material is going to come from, where it's coming from, and what the price of that's going to be. So the capital regulation, all the means of productions in this mosaic of doing business are then regulated and dictated by the state. 
So essentially, then, if you go back to our definitions of private property rights and the characteristics of that of ownership, control, use, ability to dispose, those don't really exist well, under fascism. Title. Yeah, title. you've got the title, <laughs> yeah, but you really can't use it the way you want to. You can't control it the way you want to. No. Uh, you, quote unquote, own it. Correct. And you better do with it what the state tells you to or else you don't own it anymore. Yeah. So so it doesn't really have those characteristics of private property. Yeah. But initially, that was just uh, exuberance. I mean, gosh, I own property. I own property. I, my, none, none of my family's ever owned property in, in the sense that they're talking about here. So, so would you say, sort of like we talked about in the forms of government, that inevitably anarchy turns into oligarchy? Yeah. That, that the, the chaos of the masses, rule of none, is going to turn into somebody rising up and taking control. Yeah. Would you say in a similar way fascism inevitably turns into communism? Essentially, essentially, it's just sure. communism with another name. Well, th- these blended systems, this all came about the great um, industrial revolutions um, of the 1800s. America was just running away with it after the Civil War. I mean, innovation after innovation, invention after invention, uh, standard of living just going through the roof. Um, you know, you have all sorts of positive things coming out of the American system because people are given the ability to do their own creative things and they can own property and they can also control their own capital. So this whole thing is uh, kind of a jealousy thing on the side of the um, Atlantic, the other side of the Atlantic. The the rulers, as well as the academics and the uh, intellectuals, are saying... Well, somehow we've got to restrain this free market and we've got to enhance uh, this um, ruler, uh, this, um, uh, what is our, state-controlled economy. And so their, their premise is flawed to begin with. The premise is we've got to restrain free market and we've got to enhance state control. So the outcome of that is inevitably is going to be more and more state control and less and less free market. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. But a lot of it is just as a response from rulers who have gone through all of these revolutions and been changed so many times and been kicked out or barely won their revolution, and so they're still in power. Um, But they know that they've got to do something for their citizens in order to have some peace and some stability. And so they're introducing these ideas that necessarily turn into the same outcome of ruler yeah, subjects. The blended system is taken over by yeah. the more powerful die, if you want to say it that way. Yeah, exactly. So so fascism is, they have the private property supposedly or ownership, yes. but the, the capital is controlled or heavily regulated yes. by the state. What are the other two, socialism and, and Nazism? Well, socialism is basically another pretense. The state says, we're not going to own uh, property. We're just going to own these industries. So transportation, communication, media, medicine, uh, all the things that are essential, utilities, uh, everything that's an essential part of an economic system, then we're going to own that because we can run it more efficiently than the private sector could. Uh, Then the rest of the economy can be fascist, where we're not going to own that property, but we're going to allow you to own the property, but we are going to regulate it. So you can just expect some regulations. So, but the socialism label is basically the government, the state owning the essential industries. Now, if the state is controlling the essential industries, they control everything. 
you know yeah. you can the pretense is the same pretense so the ultimate slide is to uh, restrain free markets and make sure that the state control is enhanced so the ultimate slide ends up in communism again it's it's basically right back to king george or the czar or the emperor of china i mean it's the ruler class that runs everything Politics as well as economics. And, and we'll get into this in a bit, but of course, there's no competition or so on. So there's really no motivation or impetus behind why would it run more efficiently? And no. of course, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right? And, and we'll get into that in a bit. So then Nazism, sort of a last blended well, system. Well, Nazism is another uh, way of recasting the same thing. So Nazism, uh, the state doesn't own the essential industries. They're in partnership with monopolies private monopolies that own them. But the private monopolies are completely beholden to the state. So Hitler's friends own the car manufacturing. Hitler's friends own all the defense industries. Hitler's friends own everything in medicine. Hitler's friends own state radio. But it's not Hitler, you know, but in fact it is. And again, it's just more pretense, more labeling that ends up with the same outcome. So we, we see some of these blended systems really just going back to a state-controlled system. Inevitably, which, that's where Communism, yeah. which is really just, like you say, historically, whatever you want to want to call that, the King George or, or all throughout history, yeah. we see that. Now, in Adam Smith's book, which was published again in 1776, he coins this term, the invisible hand, which is sort of this attribute of a free market or a free enterprise system. Right. How does that work maybe in contrast with a state-run system? What is this invisible hand and how does it function? Okay. Well, and and his um, book really was the uh, initiation of the, the uh, uh, Industrial Revolution because all of a sudden now you have machinery and now all of a sudden you have these other things that are means of production that are unimaginable because everybody was just a craftsman you know you'd you'd make one thing at a time and then you'd put it on the shelf to sale and now it's mass produced yeah so your so, capital was a horse yeah and now you got yeah. 400 horsepower so right. to speak right yeah, it's, it's exactly. multiplying yeah. yeah so the technological advancements due to this idea of a free market were pretty pretty astonishing but the invisible hand um that pencil the number two pencils the classic example it's it's a incredible invention that replaces something that's needing to be replaced. So if somebody innovates an idea and they come up with, how am I going to make that? Uh, it should be made in a mass-produced form in order to keep the price down and keep my quality right. And so I'm going to set up a plant in Pennsylvania. You knew Pennsylvania was named after pencils, didn't you? <laughs> no, maybe not. <laughs> but anyway, I digress. So he comes up with this idea... And you tell me what you remember as being, what are the components of a pencil, the physical components? Right. Well, I guess you have uh, the rubber. You've got sort of that band that holds the rubber mm -hmm. on there. You have barrel. They're typically yellow or sort of a dark yellow. So you mm -hmm. have, I guess they paint them or coat them or something. You have wood. Yeah. Um, right. Graphite. Have, yeah. The writing so, portion. Yeah. So uh, the wood is the primary element. Uh, it's red cedar from the Pacific Northwest. And that could be British Columbia, that could be Washington, Oregon, could be anywhere in that region. But that's the best wood for pencils. The graphite, largest uh, producer of graphite in the world is Vietnam. So they produce in a mine, they mine graphite, and then they ship it to the Pennsylvania factory. 
the rubber would typically come from uh, South America or Indonesia. Your metal is a blend of metals, so you'd have some iron from, um, I don't know, Africa, and you'd have some tin from Tobago, Tobango, or whatever, wherever tin's made, I don't know. But so you, you have all of these elements. Your paint, uh, the pigment probably would come from China. The, uh, the paint itself would be an oil product from Saudi Arabia or the Arab region. So you've got all of these things going along. Who's coordinating those things to be then shipped to the factory? Uh, be the factory owner knows what he needs, but is he coordinating the guys chopping down the trees? Does he own the, the lumber company that chops down the trees? No, no. He doesn't own the graphite mine in Vietnam. And he doesn't shop the graphite mine in Vietnam versus the graphite mine in Africa to find out which is going to give him the better deal. He doesn't own any of that. It's, it's amazing. All of this comes together in a form that he can, in a factory, create a three-cent pencil. And it's all done without ever knowing who's cut down the tree. Uh, the tree guy doesn't even know he's cutting down a tree for a pencil. Miner doesn't know he's giving us graphite for these pencils. The rubber guy, all they're doing is getting the rubber off the tree. And then the, the thousands, the millions, the multiple, multiple millions of people that are involved in creating a pencil. That's the invisible hand that Adam Smith's. All this coordination is done with a purpose for an economic activity. And it's also done as a benefit to everybody who participates. The factory owner could care less what somebody's religion is. They don't care what the, the, uh, the race is. They, they don't care what their country of origin or what they're, who they are. That doesn't really matter. So you're, you're leveling the playing field in some of these ways through this economic force called the invisible hand. And you're creating products then through the Industrial Revolution and even up to today that are astonishing advancements in technology. It's amazing if you think about I I couldn't make a pencil. I could bring you some my wood own. and graphite. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> but the alloy for the metal and yeah. the rubber and where would I get yeah. all of that? Yeah. But and yet all of this is coordinated not because it's got a state saying we need the Department of Pencils, yeah. and the, the Department of Pencils is going to make sure that we're going to put all these. But there's economic benefit through it. Yes. And so this free market, free enterprise system is coordinating the accomplishment of something that that is. Pretty extraordinary, and of course, we've seen uh, here in our country how that has sped up this process of innovation. Yes, and and just by multi by multiples, you think about you know earlier you mentioned the smartphone, right? And the amount of coordination in a smartphone, and all the way down to the you know who gave lunch to the person who yeah. with the silicon that way, you know, all yeah. the way down yeah. the, the line. Yeah, who built the truck that hauled the lumber? Who yeah. who put the road in? You know the out the coffee shop that gave the guy a piece of pie at the four o'clock break. Yeah. I mean, so he could go back to work and finish the day. So you can't even count how many people are involved in the most mundane little piece of, you know, metal, wood, graphite, and rubber. Uh, that uh, it's just an astonishing thing when you start to really put all of that together. So it's pretty interesting that we see here that there's really not a whole bunch of different types of economic systems out there. You, no. you don't really have communism and fascism and, and Nazism and socialism. And because really those all come down to communism 
or or what we're calling a state controlled economy. Yes. And you really it's not it's not state controlled economy versus capitalism because we've seen that no matter what economy you have, whether it's state controlled or privately mm-hmm. owned, it, it's going to involve capital. Yes. So capital's there no matter what. Really it's this idea of it's either going to be private property, which we see outlined in the Declaration, we see illustrated in the early days of American history, yes. versus a state-controlled economy. Yes. So sort of summing up here, Stan, which of those is going to lead to a better condition for people uh, under which of those economic systems? Well, you're asking to evaluate the economic system on its morality. If it's going to be what's best for the human condition, the flourishing of man, the dignity of man. Those are moral questions, and that's what we should be exploring because you need to balance which one's better. You need to ask the question, which one's better, and then why is it better? Because the king makes more money or because more people are blessed with more bounty? And so those are the moral questions that we ought to be asking in our next lesson. 